Hello and welcome to the Old Reiki Retold podcast. I'm Susie Murray, one of the collection's project assistants involved in an exciting project that the Museums and Galleries Edinburgh are undertaking, looking into our entire collection. During this process, we've been pulling out amazing stories that have been hidden inside our collections just waiting to be told. Today we're doing a special episode celebrating Robert Louis Stevenson Day, which is the 13th of November, and we thought was an excellent opportunity to talk about one of our very exciting new acquisitions in the Writers' Museum, part of the Robert Louis Stevenson's collection, which includes the Stevenson Family Bible. But first off, following on from our photographic theme, we're going to look at the Robert Louis Stevenson South Seas photographic albums. To discuss the photographic albums, I'll be joined by Nico Tayak, who is the head of the project and our collections documentation officer. Nico has been working to make the South Seas albums available on Capital Collections and has a keen interest in Robert Louis Stevenson's travels around the world. And then we'll be catching up with Anna McQuarrie, who's one of our curators from Social History. Anna was a curator involved in the most recent acquisition into the Robert Louis Stevenson collection, and she's going to tell us just a little bit about this acquisition and what it means for the Writers Museum here at the Museums and Galleries Edinburgh. So Nico, looking at what we refer to as the South Seas Robert Louis Stevenson photographic albums, can you tell me a little bit more about how big these albums are and what kind of time period these albums represent? Well, we've got actually quite a few albums in our Robert Louis Stevenson collections. Um, this particular set is a set of four albums relating to his travels in the South Pacific. Um, we've got other albums that I'm just coming across now on, on our, our collections database, uh, which has more images of early, in, or early on in his life or later on in his life. But these four that we're talking about today uh, are very clearly dated, uh, 1889 to about 1890. Okay, so that's a really specific period, and that's actually, isn't that just when he kind of had moved over to that, that part of the world, is that correct? Yeah, the albums we have there are of uh, specific journeys he did. It's the first time he actually sailed into the South Pacific. He had been living uh, in various parts of Europe, did a stint down in Bournemouth uh, and then in the Alps, and then went off to the States, uh, where he actually met his, his wife and, and married in San Francisco. Um, they chartered a boat called the Casco, which left San Francisco in 1888. And they did a few months sailing around and stopped off at various points. And then eventually, after several cruises, ended up buying property on Samoa. And that's where he stayed until he died. In fact, he, he died and is buried in, in Samoa. That's really interesting. So his wife, his wife's Fanny, is that that's correct? Right. Yeah. Um, so, so is it her that mainly took the images? Was it him that used, mainly took the images? Or is it a mix of different people who took the images that are in our collection? It, it's a mix. Um, the, the albums themselves are very delicate. Um, they're in deep store and, and thankfully they've been digitised at really high resolution. So that's kind of what we're using when we're doing research on them. Um, I'd love to see what's on the back of the photos. They're stuck on. So we're not, you know, we're not in a position at the moment to actually remove them. But that would be some great work to do. So we're having to go on what's actually annotated on the albums themselves. And they've all got handwritten notes on the albums. Not too sure whose notes they are. Um, I suspect probably not Robert Lewis himself. Uh, I think it's probably his stepson, a chap called Lloyd Osborne. Uh, and a lot of the photos are taken by Lord Osborne. Other photos are taken by other family members. There was a whole group of family and friends that kind of came and went and visited him and lived with him throughout the years. Um, and it looks like these albums were probably compiled over quite a long period of time. 
Uh, one of the things that really confuses me is uh, the, the later album, which has um, more of the Samoan material when they were actually living and settled there. There's photos of his tomb, which, yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> so you think, okay. So it was built before he died? Well, either it was built before he died, or I suspect is that they just continued compiling the album after he had died. And actually the album you know, it was, was a family album that continued, you know, it didn't just stop when, when, when Stevenson himself died in 1894. Um, but it carried on being a family album. Um, there's a lot of images. That... His, his wife, his wife outlived him, is That's that right. correct? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Okay, so she may have continued on when people came to visit and people took photos, they may have been continually added to the record. That's right, and, and Lloyd Osborne, his stepson, so the, the son of his wife from a previous marriage, um, he okay. was quite a keen photographer, um, so we know that a lot of photos were taken by him. Um, the fantastic thing about these albums is that um, we have it's a lot of it is documented in in the writings of Stevenson himself. You know, he he wrote the book in the South Seas, which is um, effectively a, a travel travel log of of his journeys down there. Uh, he wrote a lot about the sort of the political situation in, in the South Pacific. So a lot of the photos are directly showing people and places that he wrote about, which is just an amazing resource. It's kind of like a storybook, but they're kind of separate. So you can kind yeah. of look through the, the things of his writings and then follow along in the, in the photographic images that we have in our collection. That's really interesting. I never, never thought about it that, that way. That's pretty much what I've been doing. So uh, uh, <laughs> a lot of these images are on the um, Capital Collections website. Uh, and anyone can go in and, and have a look at them and read about them. Um, and it's a, a long, long, long time plan of mine to continue populating these these images with all the information from Stevenson's writings um, and, and actually making that link. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really interesting. I think the Capitol Collection records are, they add so much context. And if you don't know Stevenson's writing, I think it's really it's a useful context to kind of get into Stevenson's writing and understand from where he was writing. That's right, that's right. And, you know, that there are various academics uh, who are using the the images um, to, to research all sorts of things. So there's an angle from the history of photography, because, again, you know, this is late 19th century in the South Pacific. Because we, we think that, oh, wow, you know, these, these people are out there taking holiday snaps and photos in the South Pacific. Isn't that advanced? There was actually a lot of professional photographers, mainly Europeans, I have to say, um, that settled in the South Pacific, who were producing tourist photography for, for visiting tourists. Um, it was a part of the world that a lot of Europeans would go to. Um, the artist Gauguin was in Tahiti for around about the same time. Um, lo lots of people were, were traveling around down there. So the idea of it being, you know, somehow a, a unique thing for the Stevensons to be taking images, it, it's not so much. It's the fact that we've got this amazing archive and that he wrote about it. That's the, the really cool thing. Yes, I guess quite a lot of the images that we might have from the same sort of period or the same sort of area might not have that written context that goes along with them. They will be unannotated or just not really have the stories of the communities in which the images were taken. But I just love this idea of you know people taking photographs and then developing them in an area which we think of probably being quite you know, basic in terms of development. But obviously they had photographic studios, they had the ability to develop all these amazing images, but also the content of the images. So some of them almost seem like they're done in photographic studios. Was that something that was quite common? Yep, I think so, yeah. Um, a lot of the photos we have, um, as you say, are you can tell it's a, it's a photographic studio. The backdrop 
on first sight might be a sort of um, Samoan forest or beach scene, but actually realise it's painted on canvas and the person has just, <laughs> just plonked in a studio. Um, and a lot of the cards, the photos would have been printed on cards um, that we have a, a lot of these sorts of things in our collections from, from, from Edinburgh, you know, that were printed on the Carte de Visite um, sort of format with a photographer's name on the back of it. Uh, a lot of these are from these sorts of photographers and, and that was their trade. That's what they did. Um, what's really interesting is the the sort of the, the the style and content of the photos that were done by um, the professional photographers, if you like, as opposed to the photos that were done more informally. And this is where it gets really interesting. Um, so the, there was one particular photographer, a chap called John Davis, and a lot of the photos and the albums are by this chap. Um, and they're very studio photos. They're there's or, or they're very posed. You know, it's very kind of trying to present this idea of Samoa as as perhaps people back in Europe had visions of it. So it's possibly a little bit stereotypical. Okay. At worst, slightly offensive, I should imagine. Um, okay, so maybe not the best context. It's someone who's coming in, for, who's non-native, who's coming in and trying to kind of tell a story that might not be the most genuine story of yeah, the time. Yeah, it's the equivalent of, of you walk down the high street in Edinburgh and you've got all these tourist shops selling, you know, what appears to be typical Scottish stuff, but actually... It's really, really uh, not. Ah, uh, yes. All those shirt, shirtless men in kilts standing on big yes, rocks. That's exactly, exactly what that. Yes, like. yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> um, so it's kind of that, that sort of comparison. At least that, that's how I see it. Um, whereas the photos that Stevenson uh, was taking, well, his family were taking, are, are much more sympathetic. Um, they're much more spontaneous. Obviously, the, the nature of photography at the time is you had to stand still. I mean, it, it wasn't just a quick snap you could take with your phone. Uh, you, you had to prepare it. That said, you know, that there's, there's shots of everyday life. There's people, you know, bringing sh um, fishing boats up the beach. There are people kind of preparing food. Um, there's, you know, a, a lot of the images are of particular meetings. There's, there's shots of, of them hanging out in the local bar on, on one of the islands that they visited. Um, so it's a lot more spontaneous, if you like. And genuine, I guess it is really just showing everyday life. Yeah. Quite a lot of it's outdoors as well, which probably was really helpful during the time because to get a faster exposure, you would want a great amount of light. And I'm imagining that, that in Samoa, there's quite beautiful weather just because of where it is geolocated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so hopefully that helped with kind of taking these really beautiful still images. And I think they do really capture the everyday life of, of the people who he was you know living amongst because he did become sort of almost not native but you know he lived there until the end of his life did he not that's right yep so he arrived in samoa um in 1889 um and bought an estate there and built built a house there for his family and and, and, and servants um and he lived there for three or four years he died in 1894 so yeah, he was about there for about four years during that time he did a fair amount of traveling around so he, he kind of did he went to Australia for a bit. I think he went back to Hawaii. Um, he tra he revisited some of the islands that he had previously gone to. So he wasn't on Samoa all the time. But while he was there, uh, he observed the sort of the, the plight of of the Samoan people. Um, the island was a lot of these islands um, in the South Pacific were were basically being fought over by particularly the states, um, Germany, France, and Britain. Um, there was a quite lucrative market uh, of various raw materials. Uh, it was 
pretty much at the height of you know imperialism and everybody was well everybody in Europe was trying to make their empires bigger and better than everyone else's um, and Stevenson had seen in Hawaii um, the the last monarch the last he visited a, a chap called David Kalakaua uh, who was the last independent monarch of an independent Hawaii um, and pretty soon after or in fact during the Stevenson's visit there Hawaii became subsumed into into the US and he could see this kind of starting to happen in Samoa so he got really involved with local politics there was a lot of infighting um, so the German state would you know would, would support one particular chief on Samoa the US would support another it all got rather messy um, Stevenson backed the the wrong guy that, that effectively lost the, <laughs> the the civil war if you like but despite having you know backed the losing party was very popular because of his his support I think it's it's really interesting to see how much he really cared about the community and obviously even though you're saying he backed the losing party he didn't do it because of his connections to Britain or to, to Germany or to the States. He did it because he loved where he lived and he respected these people and their way of life. Yeah. And maybe not always, maybe with the best intentions, but you can see that he had a real sense of these were part of his community and these were people that he felt like he belonged with them. That's right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, he, he you know, the, he, he built this estate by Lima uh, in Samoa. And, and yeah, he was, he was very highly regarded. Um, he was known as Tusi Taula. That was the sort of Samoan nickname he got, which means teller of tales. And in the collection at the Writers' Museum on display, we've got a, a tortoiseshell ring that was given to him by the Samoans with Tusi Taula written on it, uh, which is really lovely. And there's, there's lo lots of, yeah, lots of evidence to suggest that he was really very highly, highly respected when he was there. There's also an element of him collecting quite a lot of the kind of shorter stories that he, he collected from the local community to to save them and to retell them. So I'm aware that obviously he did write a lot of his own work, but he also sort of formalised a lot of the local stories and tales and, and moral tales, I guess they would be called. And so I guess there's that sort of awareness that people were sharing a lot of their culture and their history with him and thought of him as being as being someone who, you know, they felt that they would protect their culture. And I think that's obviously a great show of faith in someone who isn't from there and kind of just showed up and, you know, obviously made a big effect on their lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I mean, his later writing is, is really interesting. You, you see a definite change. So, you know, you look at um, his early stuff when he was still in Britain. So you look at the novel Kidnapped. It's, it's a fantastic story and I would encourage anyone to go and read it. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a very romantic idea of, you know, of the Jacobites and Highland culture. And it's, it's, it's quite simplistic in a way. Um, you know, he very much portrays the Jacobites as, as you know, lovable rogues, if you like. Um, and it's quite a romantic idea. His time in Samoa really showed him, you know, he became much more sort of realistic and, and less you know, less dewy-eyed, if you like, about how he viewed what was going on around him. And his writing becomes a lot more, a lot darker. And I, I think, you know, in, in sort of the the field of, of literary critique, you know, he's compared to with um, folks like um, uh, Conrad, you know, The Heart of Darkness in Africa and, and, and you know, quite realist, dark works about colonialism. Um, yeah, I guess he saw a lot of humanity when he was over there, didn't he? He did, he did. Um, and... Yeah, and, and some of the works is what's, what's really interesting is if you look at the one of his last books, Katrina, which is the sequel to Kidnapped, 
Uh, he loved it. It was his favourite novel. It's it's the sort of the, the sequel, and it's all about a legal case. It's very interesting. Stevenson trained as a lawyer, so I think that's where that comes back to. I found it quite boring, I have to say, as a book, because it's, <laughs> it's all very legalese, and it, and it doesn't have that sort of a romantic spirit that kidnapped have it's it's much more gutsy and much more earthy and 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 i thought now that i've kind of you know looked back at these albums and, and seen how he's seeing the people around him it kind of starts to make sense that katrina is 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 born out of you know a much more sympathetic awareness of everybody yeah i think i think this photographic album and the, the other photographic albums associated with stevenson really do show a development of both a person but also a culture and I think that's why I really like them it's because it, you kind of get the contrast between what we know about his life when he was in in Britain um, and also in America and then how different that was and how involved he was in the community over in Samoa. So you're saying how um, Stevenson had witnessed the fall of the last leader in Hawaii is there any kind of representation of him meeting chieftains or any other sorts of leaders in the photographic albums? There, there is. There's loads. Um, there's some some great, great photos. And again, because they're all annotated, we we know where they all are. Um, so while he was uh, visiting the the Marquesas Islands, which is his first stop, if you like, from leaving San Francisco, um, and the pre the the chap who he met as chieftain there was a chap called Power. Uh, he had recently become chief because the previous chief was one of the last active cannibals uh, of. The, the islands uh, and previous a few, a few years before Stevenson arrived there'd been various incidents of infighting and cannibalism uh, so the French the French authorities deposed um, Moipu the previous chief and appointed this new chap and we've got some really interesting pictures and again Stevenson writes about them both of Moipu in Marquis and chief outfit as opposed to Paiwa who's in you know what we would consider sort of western suit and they're standing side by side it's a great contrast. Isn't it's a great it? contrast, and and Stevenson writes very fondly of, of them both. You know, despite one of them being a cannibal, who's apparently his favourite food was human hand. Um, oh. <laughs> no. Um, but he writes very fondly of them both, and uh, apparently the, the 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 current chief, so Paua, kind of was was always present when there's a camera around. He always wanted to be there. Uh, obviously, feeling that you know his his political situation was but yeah a bit precarious. So it's it's just fascinating, um, and you know we're approaching it from from the museum's collections angle. There's there's just so much to be got from these albums. There really is. So I also think them all being annotated. One of the things you've mentioned is that we know so much because of these annotations. We obviously wouldn't know who these people were without these annotations. We can make assumptions, but I don't think that would be helpful. But the the annotations are very much like when you find your family photographs, and you know there's nothing written on the back of them, and you're thinking, I know who these people are, I'm sure, but I don't know, I don't know specifically, or the the you know the year or the time. So you you know going through all the photographs that you might have at home and and annotating the back mm -hmm. of them, maybe one day you know you don't know what's going to happen to you. So maybe one day someone will find these images and they'll be able to glean so much about about our time That's today. Right. And so I think I think Stevenson and his family and the amount of information that they recorded is just such a gift that um, we've managed to acquire as a museum service. Like I think we've become incredibly lucky to have these. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're they're, they're an amazing resource um, and. More, more to come as we, you know, as we find more, more albums and do more, more work in the stores. So the, there's obviously a series of, of albums. Did they all come to us at the same time, or did we kind of acquire them in bits and pieces? 
Um, the, the main four South Seas albums, um, three of them actually came to us directly from Lloyd Osborne. Oh. Um, so, so our records say, yeah. So wow. um, a, a lot of the Stevenson collection we have um, came in from uh, Lord Guthrie, um, who was, I think he was a, a family friend um, or certainly one of the founding members of the Robert Louis Stevenson Club. Okay. Um, so, so there's a you know there's quite a strong link there. Um, but yes, uh, I, I gather that three of the albums uh, came to us directly through through the Osborne family. Um, so therefore, Stevenson's descendants. Um, the fourth one, we rather less prosaically, we bought at auction. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to complete the set, didn't we? <laughs> we had to complete the set, and 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 you know uh, these are just four out of a handful of albums that came to us from various sources, but. I think yeah, the, the the strong link is is family descendants, which of course ties in very much with with the, the acquisition we've recently had in the last month or two. I think obviously people see the value in their family history, and obviously they are aware that we are collecting Stevenson's life as a as a collection in the Writers Museum, and so it's great that people come forward and want to share that information with us. And this acquisition that hopefully Anna's going to tell me a little bit more about is just so exciting, and I think will hopefully add a lot more context to a lot of the collections that we already have. It will indeed, yeah. Um, I was there when the, uh, the the donation came in, and I it was very exciting. Really, I can yeah, only imagine. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Anna, and thanks for joining me. I've already spoken to Nico about our photographic albums, but I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of insight into this newest acquisition and how you got involved. Well, inquiries come to us through lots of different ways and with a small team of history creators, so I'm one of three, we divvy up uh, the inquiries and possible donations that come to us just on a case-by-case basis. So it was purely just a matter of me being free to take on this query when it came through that it, that it landed in my lap. And it was quite a while ago, it was probably about, it was even before lockdown, I think, that um, the donor got in touch with us right. about this donation. So it's been a long time in the works. Uh, but since then, I've also become the curator with responsibility for the RLS collections. So it's been a nice way to kind of move into that new responsibility and trying to get an understanding of the man, his work, the family and so on. It's a nice welcome to the collection, I guess. And so what is the object? Give us give us the rundown. What is this amazing acquisition that we've just acquired? Well, it's not just one object. That's what's so exciting about it. So the main star of the show, as far as this donation is concerned, is the Stevenson family Bible. But oh. there's also, yeah, but there's also the Bible box. Um, there's a family record tracing the many different generations and branches of the family. There's a whole set of Edinburgh edition books um, with a really interesting dedication in them. And we've also got some engravings of um, some of the family members as well. So there's quite a lot in the donation, but the main thing which captured our attention in the first instance was the family Bible and the Bible box, because that is a very special, very important object to the family, but also to us as, as a museum service. That's that's a really, really amazing object. So just out of my own curiosity, what is a Bible box? Before we get into the more details. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I'll tell you a bit about what a family Bible is and kind of what that means as well. Okay. So this Bible in particular um, dates to 1799. So it belonged to the Stevenson family and it was specifically owned by Robert Stevenson, who was Robert Louis Stevenson's grandfather 
And with the Bible is uh, the Bible box in which it would have been housed. And as, as I mentioned, the family record. So that fam- the handwritten family record lives inside the Bible, which lives inside the Bible box. So the box itself is this really beautiful old um, engraved wooden box with an angled lid. Uh, so it's much bigger than the Bible itself. It would have housed the Bible for safekeeping in the house, okay. but also while it was being transported to and from the lighthouses that the engineers in the family were constructing around the country when they were working for the Northern Lighthouse Board. So this is a Bible and the box itself, which has seen a lot of use, a lot of hands on it, a lot of people... Uh, praying and worshipping around this an object which has been much used much loved and you can see that in it it's got real character to it you can see the age of it and that you do these kind of weird and use marks on it it's very very tactile and it's a, it's a beautiful looking object the box and the bible itself has really got just looking at it you can tell that there's so many stories there within it so what kind of age do we think that this this Bible and the box are? Are they the same age or are they different? Um, the box, I'm not entirely sure. Um, need to look into it a wee bit more, but it's probably going to be not too dissimilar in age because a family... So the Bible itself, we know that um, within the family record, there's a little bit written by Robert Stevenson, the first of the Stevenson engineers, that, that, that he acquired the Bible on the occasion of his marriage. And that was in 1799. So we have that... It's a good gift. Yeah, isn't it? And it's a really, from our perspective, from museum perspective, you know, that's a really beautiful bit of provenance there as well, that we can date it exactly to when that was a, that was um, acquired. So we know from the family that it's come down through all these generations, from the donor who is a member of the extended family, but also that we have actually got it in the, the person who acquired it the first time. We've got it in his own handwriting and stating I received this Bible on this occasion at this on this occasion, and we know the date of his marriage. So that's a lovely thing. Um, the box itself is probably going to be a similar age uh, because you would. It's not uncommon for, especially in a family of means, um, to have a special box which was, um, if not precisely tailor-made for that specific Bible, then it was you know well fitted to it and it it worked to secure it and to store it because these are financially as well as uh, kind of emotionally and um, religiously important objects and valuable objects as well so there's something that would be wanted to be stored and, and kept well even though they're being used all the time they were being something there wasn't just kind of like sitting gathering dust in a corner it was something that which has been kind of cared for and looked after well that's really interesting. I never thought about the financial value of a family bible at that time but I guess it must have had significant value you know, financially as well as emotionally. Um, yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, I couldn't give you a cost for what one might have might have cost to buy in 1799, for example. I'm sure we could find that out if I, um, once I do some more research into it. But it's a wedding gift, so it's not an insignificant purchase, is it? Exactly. It's a very special yes. object. Precisely. I mean, we give, um, today at weddings, you always want to give something that's a bit special to mark the occasion, and that was no different 200 years ago either. It's to mark a yeah, significant occasion in a person's life, a new chapter, a new start, um, and I think the Bible really represents that really beautifully. And it's also, it's not, I haven't, I haven't mentioned the dimensions of this yet, but it's not a small book at all. This is quite a substantial Bible. So it's not a pocket um, Bible. <laughs> it's not a pocket Bible. It's not a tiny wee miniature one or anything. No, this is a this is a big one. So if you can imagine that the Bible box would act almost almost like a lectern, and Bible boxes often would have a little lip 
on the um, on the angled lid so that the Bible could be held on top of it and it used almost as a transportable lectern. This the one that we're talking about today doesn't have that, but it has got the angled lid. Oh, okay. But yeah, you can imagine that. Yeah, this is not a small object, not a small book at all. Um, so it's it's not insignificant in its size, its meaning, and also its um, financial value at the time. Books weren't weren't cheap and easy to come by. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought about it that way, but it must mean something special. I feel like getting a family Bible for your wedding is a great gift, but I don't think it's something we commonly do now. Was this a really common practice? It was not uncommon. I think that's a fair way to phrase it. Okay. In uh, kind of in the Western Christian world. Certainly for, I mean, today it's much less common. I think that's kind of, it ties in with a much changed attitude towards religion and the role that religion and faith plays in everyday life today. But there's lots of known examples of family Bibles. We've got quite a few within our wider collections even. Oh. So they're not rare as far as objects go. And as I say, they're reasonably common in Christian families. But, but that was particularly in the mid to late 19th century and into the early 20th century. So a family Bible, um, just for a bit of context, that would typically be quite substantial in size, as the as this one is, um, and often have a locking mechanism on them as well. So just All right. indicating that this is a you know a valuable a valuable sort of uh, object, and this is an heirloom object as well. So uh, as you've mentioned, this one was given as a as a wedding gift and has been used by subsequent generations of the of the family and that reflects that importance of religion and faith in the domestic lives of families so they're domestic objects and a bible like this one that we're talking about would be an important focal point for prayer and worship within the domestic setting allowing the family to come together and not just practice their faith but actually demonstrate it to each other as well so a real focal point for the family what what's interesting to me and to us about this Bible in particular is knowing that it was used by Adolescent's immediate family. So we know that it belonged to his granddad, obviously, and there's multiple other people in the family who would have been using it. But also knowing that the church played an important role in Adolescent's early years, um, especially with his nurse, Alison Cunningham, who anybody listening who's familiar with Adolescent will know have heard being referenced as as Cummy, um, a really really important figure in his in his life, and she had a strict Calvinist faith, and that inevitably had an influence on on the young man and his imagination as a writer. So, my imagination then starts to to wander, thinking about all the other ways that this or all the other things that this particular Bible might represent. You know, thinking about um, the influence on on his work and the, maybe the, perhaps the manner in which this Bible was used within the family and any sort of impact that might have had on him. So it's really interesting for for a number of different different ways and it's a really good, great example of a family Bible and all that all that, that means. It being a family Bible, whose responsibility in the family was it to update the Bible and when was the Bible updated until? So the Bible itself, what's interesting about it is that there are little inscriptions and little bits of marginalia in it, so marks in the margins, um, indicating where particular sermons or particular uh, chapters and books of the Bible were being read and marks in it to indicate up to which point somebody got when they were reading and also marks in it showing which particular prayers were important. Those are right at the end of the Bible and which ones were used by the family. So it's really interesting to see kind of what was being used, what passages were important. And when you look at the pages, you can see some are more worn than others. 
and up to a certain point the Bible is very well used and um, there are other books in the Bible which aren't quite so well thumbed so it's really interesting to see the kind of the use and the where from that perspective on it. The family record that's within the Bible so that's almost like a like the handwritten record of which Robert Stevenson himself started um, that the majority of that was written by himself following on multiple generations but then other family members have added in some sections of it towards the end as well so it's a few it's a few different hands that have contributed to the family record but the bible itself I'm I, Robert Stevenson I imagine would be probably the primary person who would have had been marking things in it but there may well have been others as well. You mentioned the donor so you're saying it was a member of the family who donated it so how did it come to us why did this person feel that now was the time to to give it to the public to see well as is the case for so many donations which come to us it's people who are um sometimes having a bit of a clear out (laughs) going through some family positions and thinking i've come to the end of my time and my relationship with this object and i want it to go to somewhere where i know it's going to be looked after well loved conserved and shared with a much wider audience as well what we were so lucky with was with the donor was that was precisely what they were thinking they knew that they wanted it to go some they knew they could they knew the importance the historic value to this as well as it being an important object for the within their own family but they knew it wanted, they wanted it to come somewhere where it was going to be looked after, it was going to be cared for and shared with the public. They've been really, really keen that the public is aware of this and that we've got it. But they were also familiar with um, with the museum and that it, that the Writers' Museum existed and that we had these collections of um, Robert Louis Stevenson objects. So it was just a really beautiful coming together of their wishes and what, you know, part of our ethos and what we do, which is sharing these amazing things with the public. I think that's amazing that that was their full intent at the beginning because that they want this to just be shared and given to the public as a as a beautiful piece of, of our history is fantastic and it fits so well in with our collection so I'm so glad they came to us. Yeah, I feel exactly the same and it's one of the really wonderful things is that we're able to really act on their wishes in that way as well and although when the donor came in and we spent a lot of time talking about it and inevitably as with any donation you know a huge amount of correspondence back and forth in the run-up to it and um following the donation i as a curator and any any of us who are working these collections begin to see and understand and remind ourselves i think of the personal and emotional attachment that a person has to these objects which means so much to them and to their family as well so i'm excited by it from a historical perspective and from thinking about the collections and this is just as aesthetically a beautiful object but you know, such historical value to it and everything as well. But actually, it's a really good reminder for me understanding the the emotional connection that a, that any individual has to something they're donating to us and why it's so important for us to to respect that and to remember it and that it's not just objects. It's so much more than that. It's about people and their families and their own their own attachment and connections to things as well. Yeah, to really honour the emotional history of objects. I completely agree. Yeah. So now that we've got the the Bible and the other objects associated with this donation, are there any plans to put them on physical display or digital display? Or is, you know, do we have any big plans for it? Or is it kind of doing quite a lot of research and things first? Well, we've always got to do our research, of course, um, and we're working on that at the moment. Um, I'd love to see them exhibited in the Writers' Museum, but time will tell just because the museum remains closed at present and it's impossible to be able to 
to um to plan the kind of the immediate future for the objects but knowing how keen the donor was for these things to be displayed and then knowing that the interest is there for the public people um rls is a perennially popular subject matter and definitely uh, yeah and our collections so we know that there's going to be a lot of people out there who are interested and want to see it so whether or not it goes on display in a physical venue anytime soon remains to be seen but um meantime what we're doing is getting some lovely photos of the objects and we're going to be putting those up online so people can at least see them digitally if not in person and really get a feel for all that history that's embedded in the amazing objects and everything that they represent I think especially with the, um, you were saying that there were some engravings that went along with the Bible that showed some of the family members, is that correct? Yes, so there's there's two that we've got there. So there's one that which shows Robert Stevenson, so the man himself who uh, received the Bible and started off the family record. And then the other one, oh, so that is not an engraving of a person, sorry, that's an engraving of the Bell Rock Lighthouse, which was the first lighthouse that the Stevensons built. That's interesting, and I think that'll hopefully add quite a little bit of context to the Bible. I guess it's always good to have those images that support it, and I think that's what kind of links into our um, episode that we, that Nico and I, were talking about about the the photography of the Stevenson family. So hopefully we'll be able to kind of put some names to faces through the Bible and kind of link it all together. And I think having this sort of text-based content and this photography-based content that marry together give a much more complete story of the Stevenson history. Oh, I completely agree because. Our photographs are absolutely amazing and they tell us so much. We capture, you know, so much has been captured through those photographs and what we can understand about them. And the text documents do that too. But to have them together and have all these crossover points and being able to draw these connections together about thinking, oh, that person, that face there, oh, that's that name that's over here. It's so wonderful when you're able to make these connections. Um, and also seeing things like in some of the, the books that we've acquired, um, in the Edinburgh editions, knowing that there are things which say they've been printed in Davos Platz in Switzerland, and we have the Davos printer in the Writers Museum, and you know, the, making these little connections, knowing that very direct link between our objects, and we're able to kind of build upon that and add that extra depth to our understanding of all these things. It's really, it's wonderful. It's really good. And create such a full picture. That's amazing. And yeah, I'm so excited to hear more research on this once we get um, kind of deeper into it. I feel like we're already so deep into it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think, I think there's just so many stories that we can tell from here. And that's it for another Old Reiki Retold podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed hearing about Robert Louis Stevenson and our new acquisitions here at the Writers' Museum please check out the show notes below for links to Capital Collections where you'll be able to see all of the South Seas albums that we've been discussing, as well as photographs of those new acquisitions, the new Robert Louis Stevenson Family Bible and Bible Walks. If you'd like to hear more about our work, you can head to edinburghmuseums.org.uk or find us at Edinculture on Twitter to join the conversation. <laughs>